You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, good morning, America. Uh, this is Pete Mackey, your host for Vector Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I uh, had a little problem with my uh, cell phone this morning, so I apologize if I'm late. Uh, back by popular demand, my guest today is Professor, Attorney, and Vietnam Veteran, Robert Bob Kirk. He earned degrees in law from the University of Virginia Law School and taught there uh, at the University of Virginia for several years. He had a 4.0 grade average from his postgraduate studies uh, from the University of Virginia Woodrow Wilson Department of Government and Foreign Affairs and had a 4.0 grade average at Stanford University in graduate studies in history and political science. His B.A. degree in government is from Indiana University. Bob also served two tours in Vietnam with military intelligence out in MACV. That's Military Assistance Command, Vietnam. He was on detail to the U.S. Embassy in Saigon as Assistant Special Projects Officer, North Vietnam and Viet Cong Affairs Division. In his capacity, Bob visited 42 of the 44 provinces in Vietnam. Bob, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Pete. I'm delighted to be back. All right. Uh, glad to uh, have you back, Bob. When Last time we talked, you mentioned something. Uh, when you were with the Reagan administration, you knew or uh, were, you were aware of some of the characteristics of our present president, Joe Biden. Can you tell me about that and his intelligence background? Yeah, sure. I've uh, uh, from 1970, uh, sorry, three to 79. I was the national security advisor to uh, Senator Robert P. Griffin of Michigan, who was a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as was first-term Senator Joe Biden. And so I, I, I probably averaged two to three hours a week in various meetings with Biden. He was the junior member of the Senate, the youngest member of the Senate. Not He, he was had the same seniority as his, his, his class, which was about a third of the Senate. Uh, but he was the youngest and uh, among the least impressive. He was a perfectly charming guy, but uh, intellectually he was a lightweight uh, and he had a lot of problems. He, uh, uh, in fact, very early on in my service in that job, I got a call from a a woman journalist from Delaware who wanted to know if I could confirm that he had leaked information on the previous day's classified session. And uh, well, first of all, I wasn't going to talk about a classified session. And second, I had no idea who leaked anything. Uh, but uh, as, uh, as as time went on, I uh, I got to know him uh, to know him better. Uh, he uh, uh, between uh, eighty four and eighty five, I was the acting assistant secretary of state for legislative affairs, and I worked with Biden and his staff. Uh, uh, occasionally during that time, and uh, the things that stand out about Joe Biden are, uh, to me at least, are his almost total regard for the nation's national security. He voted against almost every major national security law program. He voted against the B-1 bomber, the MX missile, the Trident submarine, 
uh, the XM1 tank, which is now the M1 Abrams tank. Uh, he even voted against funding the commissaries so that our soldiers could buy food for their families a little bit cheaper. Uh, when I went on active duty in, in the 60s, uh, the, the private E1s were making just under $100 a month. And the idea that we would not allow them to buy food cheaper so that they could feed their families just outraged me. But uh, he, he was just against everything. Uh, he, uh, he became a notorious leaker. Uh, in fact, at one point, I saw a, a newspaper article in which he was quoted as admitting that as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, if he heard a briefing on a co- uh, planned covert operation he didn't like, uh, he would threaten to leak it if they wouldn't cancel it. Uh, Are you serious? Really? I'm serious. It's, it's veto by leak. If any one member of Congress doesn't like it, you got to stop it. And... Uh, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he he was the only guy in the room who voted against getting Bin Laden. Uh, uh, I wrote an article uh, back in, I think it was, uh, uh, it was in the Washington Times, uh, October 26, 2008. If, if any of your listeners want to find it, if they just search Robert F. Turner in quotes, and then in quotes the Biden Doctrine, it should show up. And uh, basically, I, I, it documents in more detail this record, and it, it describes the Biden doctrine is uh, got the military blind to the intelligence community. Oh, sorry, I have to set it up. Uh, when, when, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait on the, I think it was the 2nd of August, 1990, Biden went on the Senate floor and said, this has to be stopped. And then the U.N. Security Council, in Resolution 678, uh, denounced what, Biden, what, uh, what uh, Saddam had done, and then in 687, called upon the United States to lead a voluntary military force to eject Iraqi forces from Kuwait, where they were engaging in a horrible abuse. I mean, they would take power drills and drill into the knees and elbows of small children to persuade their parents to conf- to talk. And uh, anyway, uh, the U.N. Security Council asked us to uh, uh, to, to lead a, a rescue, uh, and uh, when it came time to the vote, Biden said, uh, well, let's not rush into this. Uh, and apparently his kids weren't being tortured. Uh, uh, if, we, if we wait a little while, who knows, perhaps Saddam will be struck by lightning. And so the Biden doctrine was, uh, you know, got the military, blind the intelligence community, and then pray for lightning. Uh, but he, he just has had a horrible, uh, a horrible record, uh, and, and it has done serious harm. Now, some people don't understand why we need to keep secrets, and this is important. If we, if we cannot keep secrets, we will not get secrets. If we do not get secrets, we're going to lose an awful lot more lives of young American men and women in uniform uh, trying to protect our interests. And, uh, you know, if you go back and look at World War II, uh, the, uh, uh, I think the most def- decisive single factor was that we broke the German and the Japanese intelligence codes. We won it midway. We won it midway because we were listening to the Japanese, 
and we knew they were sending a major carrier uh, carrier battle group to an island, and they identified it by a code word. So we thought it might be Midway, but we didn't know. So very cleverly, using a channel we knew they were monitoring, we sent a secret message or an encoded message uh, saying that uh, Midway was running low on water, and they had to quickly move water to Midway. And shortly thereafter, we intercepted a message using their code word for Midway, saying Midway is is short of water. And so that confirmed that Midway was the target, and we said everything we had there, uh, found their their, uh, uh, carrier battle group, uh, sank the carriers, uh, you know, and and that was the turning point in the Pacific War. It was our Pearl Harbor. They had clobbered us as sitting ducks on, on, on December 7th, 1941. Well, this was our payback. And uh, had we not had that intelligence, and we almost didn't have that intelligence because a Chicago Tribune reporter uh, had been picked up when the ship he was on was, was, was sunk. And one of the officers on the new ship was kind enough to let him share his stateroom and while the officer was on duty, he he flipped through the stuff on the guy's desk and found some classified information. And anyway, it was published in the Chicago Tribune that would have, it did not say we'd broken their codes, but it showed we'd broken their codes by what it said. And luckily, apparently, no Japanese were reading the Chicago Tribune. Had it been the New York Times or the Washington Post, they would have figured out we were listening in they would have changed their codes, and, uh, you know, we we could all be speaking Japanese today. We could have lost the damn war. Uh, so uh, uh, this this is not, one of the ironies is, I, I did my 1,700-page uh, doctoral dissertation uh, at UVA. It's, it's a very rare, we, we give fewer than one a year, and mo- very few law schools even give it anymore, but it used to be, the entry-level law degree was an LLB, a Bachelor of Law, and then you had an LLM, a master's degree, and an SJD, a doctorate. Well, then in the 60s, virtually every law school changed the entry degree to a JD, a Juris Doctor. And after that, you already had a doctorate, so you didn't need this very academic doctorate. But anyway, I did one, and I wrote a 1,700-page, 3,000-plus footnote dissertation on national security and the Constitution, and I spent a lot of time looking at the views of the Founding Fathers, and it's uh, it's fascinating. They really did think about these issues. They had read Locke and Montesquieu and Blackstone and Burlamaki, all these theorists, uh, Hugo Grotius, the father of modern international law, uh, Emmerich Vattel, and uh, and and they, you know, their, their their final document, the Constitution, was colored by what they learned from these scholars. And uh, uh, throughout most of our history, all three branches understood the president was in charge of our foreign policy. Uh, what what Locke referred to is war, peace, leagues, and alliances. Uh, he called it the uh, the federative power. But uh, Montesquieu and Blackstone called it a, a, a type of the a part of the executive power, and the uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Constitution in Article Two, Section One, says the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. 
Uh, and today, you know, back in the 60s, when members of Congress who were angry about Vietnam uh, started reading through the Constitution, they saw no reference to the president being in charge of foreign policy. And so they yeah. all of a sudden set up, uh, I was actually there when they set up their first intelligence committees. Prior to that, hey, they had always said that. Yeah, no break. That's okay. We'll come yeah. right back to that. That's very interesting. We have to go to our first break. Uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Everybody stand by. Thank you, Bob. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, Atlanta. Have you heard? Get your motor running, whether you're born to be wild or not. Because on October the 2nd from 10 till 2 at Roswell City Hall, we're hosting a car show unlike anything Roswell has seen, benefiting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and free to the public. Guests will enjoy an array of exquisite, rarely seen cars, boats, bikes, plus vendors with both automotive and art themes, along with local brewery from the earth hosting a beer garden, offering a lunch menu, coffee barista, snow cones, photo booth, and face painting. Fun for all the family. Register your motor anytime up to the day of the event at atlmotoringfest.org. And for more information, call us, 770-645-6844. We look forward to seeing you Saturday, October the 2nd, in the perfect isolated space around Roswell City Hall. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to write and join the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with attorney and professor and Vietnam veteran Bob Kerner. Bob, uh, we were discussing, uh, well, you were talking a lot about the intelligence community. I was also in the intelligence community. I know you were, too. And we could talk about that for, for all day long. But let, let me ask you this. You mentioned Biden had trouble keeping classified intelligence material. Uh, he, he liked to leak it. What? What, what did Ronald Reagan think of that? Did Reagan ever know about it? 
Well, I don't know. Uh, it, it was during his administration, but whether it came to his attention or not, I don't know. I worked in the Reagan White House from 81 to 84 uh, in the intelligence area. There was something called the President's Intelligence Advisory, or sorry, President's Intelligence Oversight Board created by Executive Order 12334. And uh, I had three very distinguished private citizens, a former dean of Stanford Law School, former uh, uh, head of the University of California system, uh, uh, and, and, and a third one, and my job was to deal regularly with all of the intelligence agencies and then to brief the board on anything I found that might be illegal, and then if any one member of the board felt it was illegal, the board would go directly to the president and brief him on it. And uh, uh, it was really a fascinating job. I was cleared for every single intelligence program, so if a problem arose, they wouldn't have to spend six months getting me a, a you know a new clearance. And uh, I worked closely with Bill Casey, the head of the CIA, with Judge Webster, head of the FBI, and and and, and all the general counsel and inspectors general. And uh, came away, by the way, with great respect for our intelligence community professionals. They were were really quite good. But uh, you know, I was talking about it, it is great. very possible. It's very, very possible Reagan knew about these intelligence leaks, right? He, he, he certainly could have. He certainly knew they were leaks, but, uh, you know, spotting who was leaking. Uh, you know, I remember once I, I confronted a senator politely uh, who had uh, leaked something to the press, and he looked at me and he said, Bob, I've known Joe Smith for, you know, 10 years. He's as much a patriot as you and I are. You know, he's not a bad person. He's not a communist. And uh, he didn't seem to understand that when Joe Smith printed the secret information in his newspaper, not everyone who read it was wishing us well. The bad guys could get intelligence. And the, the problem is, if you can't, you know, the, 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 uh, John Jay in Federalist 64, these, are, these were the papers the sort of op-ed articles that were written by by John Jay, by Alexander Hamilton, and by James Madison, uh, explaining the Constitution to the American people and, and getting support for its ratification. And in Federalist 64, John Jay noted that there would be valuable sources of foreign intelligence who would confide in the secrecy of the president, but not in that of the Senate or a more numerous popularly elected assembly, that is the House of Representatives. Of course, today, the Senate is a much larger popularly elected. The Senate was originally elected by the states, and there were 22 senators. Now there are 100. And anyway, so, so Jay went on to say, therefore, the convention have done well in so disposing of the treaty power that the president informing them must act with the advice and consent of the Senate, yet, quote, he will be able to manage the business of intelligence as prudence may suggest. I think that's a verbatim quote. Uh, and this was the understanding. When Congress passed their, their first appropriation bill for foreign affairs, uh, it said specifically that the, the, it, it was a $40,000 uh, fund and it said the president shall account specifically for all expenditures from the said account as in his judgment may be made public, 
and for the amount of other expenditures. That is, don't tell us if it's sensitive, but tell us how much you spent so we can replenish the kitty next year. Uh, and in uh, in in uh, in eighteen eighteen, Henry Clay. Uh, took part in a debate in the House where people were asking about three Americans who were down in Latin America claiming to represent the president, and people were saying they were never confirmed by the Senate as ambassadors. What's going on? And, And the legendary Henry Clay stood up and said the president had a sum of $50,000, which at one point was 14% of the budget of the United States, and he said if the money for these individuals had come from that account, it would not be a proper subject for inquiry by Congress. In other words, this is none of our business. So just to give you one example of what happens when you can't keep secrets, uh, and I've not had a clearance. Go ahead. Yeah, let me ask you this. That's great information and everything. But we also were talking about uh, the Marines that were killed in Lebanon, and that seems yeah, well, to be some kind of intelligent leak. Uh, yeah, that is... Who are some Marines? Tell me about yeah, that. The, yeah, the problem there was not an intelligence leak, but rather Congress getting off the reservation and trying to man- micromanage uh, presidential power. Uh, people look at the Constitution and see that it gives Congress the power to declare war, and they assume that means the president can't use force anywhere without the approval of Congress. But that's not the original understanding. Uh, on the, uh, let's see, August 17th, 1787, during the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, James Madison proposed an amendment that would reduce the power of Congress from the power to make war to the more limited power to declare war. Now, declare war was a term of art from the law of nations, what we call international law today, and declarations of war were only considered necessary when a country was launching an all-out aggressive war. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, Hugo Grotius, Uh, the father of modern international law, wrote a book in 1620 called The Law of War and Peace, in which he said that when one is uh, acting defensively or seeking to punish the author of some crime, no declaration is required. Uh, And uh, the, 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 the point here is that there are all sorts of uses of force uh, uh, either below the threshold of all-out war or defensively that do not involve a declaration of war. And when, uh, 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 if you, when Ronald Reagan sent Marines to Beirut in 1982 as part of a four-nation peacekeeping operation, the, the Brits, the French, the Italians, and the Americans all sent contingents and the goal and it was with the approval of every group in the region, and the goal was just to keep the peace so the various rival factions in Lebanon and Beirut could come together and try to negotiate a settlement. We did not go there to kill anybody. We went there just as almost you know, a, 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 a police job to just protect everybody from being killed by their enemies. And uh, no one in Congress, as far as I could tell, objected on the merits. It was a good idea. But Democrats saw this as a chance to hurt Reagan for the uh, 1984 presidential election. And the Washington Post picked up on that. They noted that the Democrats were doing push-ups for 1984 and had put their 
uh, Lloyd Benson, who was not on the Foreign Relations Committee but was in charge of fundraising for the campaign, put him in charge of this. And they were trying to just, you know, uh, uh, wrap Reagan around the, uh, the axle. Uh, and they insisted that Congress approve any continuation of the operation, even though two Americans had been killed in Beirut by the time Congress acted, which was nearly a year into the operation, and they had been killed while defusing uh, a, a booby trap that had been left behind in an area the Israelis had occupied. This was not an act of war. You know, it was a tragedy. But uh, during this debate, uh, my good friend, uh, P.X. Kelly, who was a commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, testified before the Foreign Relations Committee, and he begged with them. He said, this partisan debate is endangering the lives of my Marines in Beirut. And on uh, September 29th, I can't believe I still remember this, on September 29th, 1983, there was a debate on the Senate floor and Joe Biden stood up and said, I have heard, and I'm sure many of you have as well, that merely by having this debate, we're endangering the lives of our Marines. Well, that may be true, but we'll never know until we have one of these debates. And they had one of those debates, and three weeks later, a terrorist truck bomb filled with explosives killed 241 sleeping Marines uh, uh, in the battalion landing team headquarters. Uh, it was a very sophisticated bomb in a large Mercedes truck, and it was built like a shape charge uh, to blow up, and it did incredible damage. And, uh, uh, you know, my own view is, uh, had it not been for Biden and the other, uh, you know, anti-Reagan Democrats, it would not have happened. Uh, the Syrian foreign minister announced shortly after the Senate vote and, and by the way, uh, a shift of four votes would have denied Reagan the uh, congressional authority to continue operating. It was authority he didn't need. He was not. He was not engaged in any kind of war. He was acting as part of the international community, trying to keep the peace. But at any rate, the Syrian foreign minister said that the Americans were short of breath. And just to make things easier, on the after the debate in the Senate. Chuck Percy, the Republican chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, announced if there are any more casualties, we can reconsider this vote at any time. Now, what message did the, did the Senate send to our adversaries? And, and they, then Iran... They all, they're, they're, they listen to us. They listen to our debates and everything else. Yeah, exactly. Like, and Iran... It's not like Iran, uh, secrets from anybody. Okay, Bob, I'm yeah. sorry. But we're going to have to go sorry. through our second break. That's okay. Sure. We'll be right back. We're going to discuss a lot of things, especially some uh, communism, uh, communism in America and a few other things. We'll be right back. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
right, folks, we're back with Bob Turner. Bob, I want to ask you something. We had talked about a lot of things. One thing that just blew me over is that right before 9-11, the British got some kind of intelligence information about potential threats, but yet they did not relate that to us. Uh, Can you tell me why? Yeah, this is another area where Congress got off the reservation and undermined U.S. security. Uh, I actually, if, if, if they search my name in brackets with George Mason Law Review and FISA, F-I-S-A, for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, I published a fairly short article just summarizing the case and, and quoting the Founding Fathers and so forth. But anyway, as I mentioned the original understanding shared by all three branches was that the president was in charge of foreign affairs under the Constitution, with exceptions, like he had to have the advice and consent of the Senate for a uh, uh, to, to appoint an ambassador. He had to have the advice and consent of two thirds of the Senate to make a treaty. But these were construed as were considered to be exceptions to the general grant of executive power to the president. And uh, just for example, Tom Jefferson, our first Secretary of State, originally called Secretary of Foreign Affairs, uh, wrote a uh, was asked by by uh, President Washington, uh, where does the Constitution place all the you know the foreign affairs power that aren't mentioned? You know they say that I make treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate, but who decides where we send ambassadors, uh, whether they're called ambassador or minister or some other title? And Jefferson wrote back that the Constitution has declared the executive power shall be vested in a in the president, submitting only special articles to uh, to a negative by the Senate to a veto. And he went on and he said, the transaction of business with foreign nations is executive altogether. It belongs then to the head of that department, except as to such portions of it as as are specially submitted to the Senate. Exceptions are to be construed strictly. And three years later, Jefferson's chief rival in Washington's cabinet, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, uh, wrote in his first Pacific essay, that uh, when the uh, uh, the Constitution vested the uh, the power to declare war in the pre- in the in the uh, in the Congress, uh, that was an exception to the general grant of executive power to the president, and was to be construed strictly. And this was the understanding until really the heated debates of the Vietnam War when members of Congress read the Constitution and didn't even see the word foreign affairs, and they did not understand that executive power had a particular meaning and included the general control of foreign affairs. And so they started passing all sorts of laws you know, trying to restrict the president in foreign affairs. And one of those was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was uh, pushed by Bella Abzug and Ted Kennedy. Uh, and uh, that prohibited the president the president from collecting intelligence on foreign nationals in the United States without getting a judicial warrant and to get a warrant you had to show that the the target was an agent of a foreign power and congress made it very clear by agent we don't mean somebody who attends their meetings this has to be somebody who quote does the bidding of a foreign power now foreign power was defined to include transnational terrorist groups like al-Qaeda. 
but uh, Masawi came here from from France, went down to uh, uh, Lubbock, Texas, and took pilot license, took pilot training to learn how to fly a Piper Cub. Then he shows up in Minneapolis with something like $8,000 in cash and goes to a Boeing simulator to learn how to fly a jumbo jet. And this young Arab male shows up with cash. They had never had anybody who didn't bring a cashier's check from an airline, and he wants to learn how to fly jets. And they got suspicious, and they called the FBI. And the FBI, to their credit, you know, they said, this guy may be learning to fly a plane to fly one into a building. I mean, they were really ahead of the curve. But they could not investigate him because they could not tie him to a foreign power. Uh, and they especially wanted to look at his laptop to see what you know his email said and so forth. And uh, so the FBI has liaison officers in many of our embassies around the world, and they immediately contacted the the Brits, the French, and I, I assume some other uh, 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 you know foreign intelligence services. Although I, I don't know the details on that, but the French came back and said, "Yes, we have a file on this Masawi guy." A woman came into one of our police stations and complained that Masawi had persuaded her son to go to Chetnia and volunteer to fight with the rebels, and he was killed there, and she was pretty pissed about it. Uh, and the Brits just totally ignored our request, and we went back and said, this is really urgent. Do you have anything on this guy, Masawi? And for weeks, the Brits did not respond. The day after the 911 attacks, the Brits gave us some files showing Masawi had trained at an al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan. Now, we know this because there was a massive Inspector General report by the Department of Justice on the, uh, you know, the intelligence leading up to the 911 attack, and it mentions this in a footnote, and then it just notes, we don't know why the Brits didn't give us the information earlier. But I actually... Uh, from my own background, I have some friends who were are now retired, but were part of British intelligence. And in talking, and they're very pro-American. And in talking to them, they've told me we are really frustrated by your leak problem because if we have sensitive intelligence, if it gets leaked, our source is going to be murdered, and our ability to recruit new sources is going to be decreased. And so. We have to really debate, can we share something with you? And I'm quite certain in my own mind, although I, this is speculation, uh, that they had a somebody who had penetrated an al-Qaeda cell and was giving them tremendously valuable information, and they get this American request about Masawi, and they said, yeah, we've got what they want, but if we give it to them, it may well become public. It may become public because of uh, court proceedings. It may well become public because they have to brief Congress, and some member of Congress will leak it to the press to show how in they are and how they have access to, uh, to information and stuff. And so we can't share it with them. And then all of a sudden we lost nearly 3,000 people on September 11th, and they immediately gave us the information. I don't blame them. You know, they have to protect their security, and if we can't keep secrets... Yeah, hang on just a minute, Bob. Let me get this yeah. straight. The British had information that could have helped prevent 9-11, but well, they it could have allowed us to get a FISA warrant. Yeah, we, yeah, we could not. They, they could, yeah. they, basically, the British intelligence did not trust us to keep secrets. Is that what you're saying? 
I, th- I think that's basically it. Now, uh, you, you need to understand, every court to decide the issue had held that the president has independent constitutional power under the Constitution to collect foreign intelligence information, whether the source is visiting the United States, assigned to an embassy here, uh, or, or, or outside the, the borders. Uh, I, I have personally spoken to uh, Justice Lewis Powell. I, I chaired the American Bar Association's Standing Committee for Law and National Security three times in the 1980s and 90s, and one of our advisors was Lewis Powell, Supreme Court Justice, who ironically authored the most important opinion uh, by the court, a unanimous opinion, uh, in this area, and he told me that he had no doubt that the president had this power. I also discussed it with uh, Justice Scalia, who I first met long before he was a justice, when he was an assistant attorney general back in 76. And he told me that was his view as well. Uh, but Congress, when it passed FISA, said, no, the president can't get this information without a warrant. And when you don't have any information about someone, he just comes up that we know he bought a lot of explosives uh, or, or he's been casing, uh, you know, some grade school or something. And that, you know, uh, Congress made a decision, okay, we're going to protect him. You cannot surveil him uh, unless you can show that he is working for a foreign power. And you, you can't do that if you don't have any information. And so, you know, it, normally the FBI would have been able to surveil Masawi, the, the tradecraft of the terrorists who uh, you know, blew up uh, things on 911 was absolutely abysmal. They shared credit card numbers. They, they lived together in apartments. Uh, they shared uh, cell phones. And if we had identified just one or two of them, we would have probably been able to roll up the whole network. But because of Congress, it was a felony to investigate them unless you could first show they were agents of foreign powers. We actually, two of the terrorists, the 911 terrorists, came up on the FBI's radar when they were in San Diego, and the FBI agents were told to back off uh, rather than risk violating their civil liberties. And uh, so anyway, my own sense is, uh, had we had Congress not tied the president's hands, uh, our intelligence community would have, you know, would have nailed these people. We've wrapped them up, and nobody would have died on nine one one. Now, yeah, let you, me uh, you this. Know. Uh, no, Bob. Let me ask you this. It sounds like to me that Congress is more worried about protecting potential problems or terrorists or attacks than they are about worrying about protecting the American people. Well, Congress viewed the intelligence community as its enemy. Now, there were things done by the intelligence community that could legitimately trouble civil libertarians. For example, they spied on Dr. Martin Luther King, who I happen to admire, Uh, but the reason they did it is because they had evidence that they were a group of communists who were trying to lead him in a certain direction that would have been very contrary to the the national interest. And uh, they also, by the way, uh, when I was a fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, I used to play tennis regularly with a man named Alan Belmont, who was a retired FBI uh, officer and, in fact, had been uh, the number three man under uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, 
And I later learned, just two or three years ago, when I looked him up on uh, on Google, uh, that he was in charge of domestic intelligence for the FBI. And we would we would have an occasional meal or something, and he would tell me about you know about uh, Dr. King, and he, he mentioned that uh, uh, he was very unfaithful to his wife. He said something. Now this has been fifty years ago. This, this would have been nineteen. Almost 50 years ago, 19, uh, uh, 90, uh, 1972 or 73, uh, and he said that uh, they had some sort of tape involving uh, an underage uh, a child, and I don't, I don't think he even told me whether it was male or female, but when all of this stuff came out, uh, Dr. King's family insisted that the FBI records be sealed. Uh, which I, to, to me suggests they understood there was some embarrassing stuff there. But anyway, it was perfectly uh, understandable that the FBI would want to know what King was up to when they knew there were uh, you know communist leaders trying to influence him. Try you know one of the goals of, of of any communist movement is to try to divide the enemy. And if you can take the African-American population in the United States, about 14% of our, of our nation, and turn them against the government, uh, that's a big accomplishment. And, and you know, it, it's sort of standard behavior. But uh, uh, there were a number of other cases that, that the FBI got criticized for. I, had a, uh, I used to run a program to train law professors and government lawyers in national security law. We ran a two-week program every June down here at the University of Virginia Law School. And one of my students in that program was a CIA lawyer who went on to write an article in the Indiana University Law Journal. Uh, he, he actually, after they had declassified what were called the CIA family jewels, the most sensitive documents that were given to the church committee, the Senate Committee Investigating Intelligence Abuses. And he looked at every one of the cases, and he found one case where he thought U.S. law was being violated. And that was a case that involved testing of LSD on unsuspecting Americans. And that case was had been stopped more than a decade earlier. Uh, it was something, I think, that got started under Kennedy and got got stopped, or I don't remember, maybe, maybe we started, I think, in the uh, either late 50s or early 60s, and it was stopped by... Uh, I'm getting a drift. I think I'm getting a drift, and probably some of our listeners are, that you can't trust the federal government. <laughs> Listen, we, got, we have to go to our last break. Uh, we'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Bob Turner. Bob, you mentioned uh, FBI investigating uh, some of Martin Luther King's associates or, or maybe some communist influence, at least the FBI thought so. So let me ask you this. The American public right now is just heart sick, and they don't know what to do because they hear about all this socialist and communist activity. Uh, they don't see much support coming out of the White House recently. Uh do you think we're still on top of this kind of influence in our country? Is the FBI doing their job, or is something going on we don't know about? That's a good question, Pete, and I wish I had an answer for you. I, I've not had a security clearance in decades. I've been a school teacher, and I honestly don't know, but I do have a sense that a lot of people elected and otherwise in this country don't remember why communism was such an evil thing and why it was important for us to resist it. Uh, had we not fought the Cold War, uh, in fact, had, had Ronald Reagan not been elected in 1980, had Jimmy Carter stayed on as president, my guess is we would have lost the Cold War uh, because we were, we were losing all over the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if anybody wants to know What's Wrong with Communism? There is a wonderful book called The Black Book of Communism. It was edited by some European intellectuals, who had most of whom had started off on the far left. Some had been Communist Party members. Uh, the English translation was published by Harvard University Press. You can get it on Amazon or you know your favorite bookstore. And it documents that from uh, the late... 19 teens until the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, 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 international communism was responsible for somewhere between 80 and 100 million deaths. This includes Stalin's gulags, uh, Mao Zedong's land reform, where you know uh, millions were tortured and died. Uh, uh, North Vietnam emulated that in the 1950s. I, I wrote the first major English history of Vietnamese communism when I was a fellow at Stanford, and it documents this land reform thing. Uh, and the uh, uh, probably millions of people who died in, in Indochina in the first three years after you know, Congress legislated an end to the war. I don't know how many Americans realize what happened. Uh, I, I traveled extensively throughout Vietnam between 1968 and the early 70s when I, le I left the Army in the end of 71, and uh, we were winning the war. There's no question in my mind about it, and I've spoken to a lot of other people who were there over a long period of time, and, and that's the unanimous view of, of people like Douglas Pike and Bill Colby uh, and so forth. And then Congress, a, a new generation of young Turks, was elected in 1972. 
and they wanted to stop the Vietnam War. So in May of 1973, they attached a rider to the Defense Department appropriation bill that said no money should be shall be used to pay, to finance combat operations by U.S. forces in the air, on the ground, or off the shore of North Vietnam, South Vietnam, Laos, or Cambodia. They threw in the towel. They made it illegal for us to help our, our, our friends in Southeast Asia. They didn't stop the Soviet Union and China from helping North Vietnam. Indeed, as soon as we did this, Pham Van Dong, the premier of North Vietnam, announced the Americans won't come back now even if we offered them candy. And both Moscow and Beijing dramatically increased their support to Hanoi. And, uh, you know, Hanoi sent virtually its entire army into Laos, Cambodia, and South Vietnam to overthrow the Vietnamese government by force and to take over Cambodia. Uh, by the way, in, in tiny Cambodia, uh, I, I traveled around Cambodia in 1974 extensively uh, and, and you know, fell in love with the place, wonderful people. And Paul Pot and his, his red Cambodians, the Khmer Rouge, when they took power, uh, Yale University set up something called the Yale Cambodian Genocide Project. And they studied what happened in Cambodia and concluded that more than 20% of the population of Cambodia had been killed by Paul Pot and the, the, you know, the, red, the Khmer Rouge. Uh, uh, that, that was, they estimated 1.7 million people were killed. I had a debate with a former senator and presidential candidate, uh, Mike Gravel, who I had known when uh, he was in the Senate, when I worked in the Senate. And uh, I said something negative about him in an email to someone at about 2 in the morning. And the next day I woke up and it was a challenge from Gravel to debate me. And he came down here. And uh, uh, I had a lot of fun, actually, because I used a PowerPoint presentation and I scanned pages from the congressional record and showed that he had introduced a bill to cut off all military aid to anyone in Cambodia. And he announced that I don't care if they kill each other with axes and picks, but it won't be with American bullets. Well, then I brought up a page from uh, National Geographic Today uh, saying it was about the killing fields, and it said that bullets were too scarce, so uh, you know enemies were killed with axes and machetes and pitchforks and you name it, and small children were picked up by their legs and bashed against trees. And then I put up a slide showing a group of uh, Cambodian orphans that I had photographed in 1974, and. Uh, when uh, when the debate was over, I, I sent Mike a uh, an email saying, "Hey, Mike, this was great fun. Tell you what, I'll come up to D.C. Let's see if C-SPAN will cover a sequel." I never heard from him again, and he passed away a few weeks ago. But uh, uh, he me, was a uh, he did horrible damage to the country. Yeah, and what you're saying is what people, at least in the know, uh, intelligent Americans who understand communism and, and what evil it has uh, that's what they are afraid of right now and well, I'm afraid go ahead go ahead I just I'm afraid that a lot of modern American intellectuals do not understand at all what was wrong with communism 
you know, we've got some people, you know, the, 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 the squad that we keep hearing about. Some of them seem to be enamored with communism. I, and one of the leaders of uh, Black Lives Matter talked about how Cuba was the, uh, the the most equitable country in the world or something like that. And they don't understand uh, the brutality of these people. And also, they don't understand that, that socialism doesn't work with human beings. Human beings want to better themselves. They don't want to be equal. They want to be better. And one of the realities is in free markets, yes, there are some people, you know, who become billionaires and get very successful, but the poor people in free markets live far better than the poor people, you know, in command economies. Uh, the, the World Bank has done the, the research, and they show that the bottom fifth economically of the uh, advanced, you know, capitalistic countries, if you will, live far better than the bottom fifth in, in command economies. And, of course, the other thing that is inevitably associated with communism is corruption. You know, it turns out that the people who get power decide they want to take care of their relatives and friends. And uh, uh, in a free market society, decisions are not made by government bureaucrats, but by individual entrepreneurs. And they have tremendous incentives to both identify and meet the wants and needs of the people. You know, I don't think we would have wheels on luggage today had had we lived in a socialist society, because there was no percentage. Why why bother to come up with that idea? But as a capitalist, hey, if I come up with an idea like that that catches on, I can get a lot of money. If I make a better mousetrap, people are going to make me rich. And so, you know, the, I, I laugh. I often call myself a non-practicing capitalist. I don't have any money, never cared about money, never bought a share of stock. But I love a system that motivates people to work their butts off trying to meet, to identify and meet the needs of the people. And, uh, you, know, it, 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 you know, it's an incredible system. Not everybody becomes Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or whatever, but in trying they make this country so much better, so much richer. And again, the uh, the, uh, uh, the the movie The Grapes of Wrath, uh, the Soviets were thinking about showing it. And then they looked at it and they realized that the poor people shown in that movie lived better than most Russians. And so they couldn't do it. And uh, Let me yeah, tell it's, you, uh, I don't know yeah. if you heard, but you mentioned the squad and the far left a desire to change things. I don't know if you heard this, but uh, the squad and some progressive Democrats have uh, stripped Israel of $1 billion in aid for more defensive weapons to uh, maintain their Iron Dome missiles, which yep. is all defensive, okay? They just shoot down missiles that are headed toward their uh, populations but they have stripped Israel of their Iron Dome replacements. Have you heard that? Which, of course, which of course will provide an incentive for, the, uh, for Hamas and other groups to fire more missiles into Israel, killing more innocent people. And uh, this is one of the interesting uh, attributes of the American left. They tend not to like Israel because, you know, and it's even true, in the State Department, uh, I've often wondered why, uh, you know, I, I, Israel is not perfect, but, you know, I, I have just tremendous respect for them. We used to 
laugh in Vietnam and say, if we could borrow Moshe Dayan for a few weeks, we could win this war and all go home. Uh, you know, they are a tiny country, and they have taken on the the Arabs time and again and just kicked butt. They're, you know, they, they are they're 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 brilliant, they're brave, uh, and uh, and yet uh, a lot of foreign foreign service officers were hostile to Israel. And I finally realized what it was. If you want to be an ambassador. There are a lot more Arab capitals than there are Israeli capitals. And if you were identified as pro-Israel, you're not going to be welcome, you know, for any of those other appointments. Now, it's more than that, but uh, the, the Israelis can be abrasive, but, but they're victims. They, they, they don't want to destroy the Arabs. They, they, you know, they're trying to protect themselves, and uh, it, it's outrageous. But uh, yet still, American Jews pour money into the Democrats, uh, not understanding that, you know, they are putting Israel at risk in the process. Yeah, that, that is horrible. I know about that. I want to ask you this. we got about one minute left. The people we lost, lost in Kabul, in that terrorist attack, we lost 13 yep. of our people. Yep. Uh, that was horrible enough. Then, in retaliation, they hit a so-called suicide bomber, that turned to be out a man and, what, eight or nine children. Children, And they, yeah. they thought it was a loaded uh, uh, suicide weapon. That's garbage. Yeah. I know from my experience in Vietnam with intelligence, we could read a newspaper on the streets of, of Moscow in the late 60s. So I just don't think it was uh, misidentification. I think something very, very wrong happened. Bob, we got about 30 seconds. You want to respond on that? Yeah, this idea that we can stay outside a country and not have agents inside or intelligent sources and just, you know, over the horizon figure out what's going on is absolutely absurd. We need intelligence information. We need agents. We can't get agents if we can't keep secrets. Congress cannot. It, it, it's just its yeah. nature. It can't keep secrets. So uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and that is the big problem. And I do hate to interrupt you, folks. We got to go. Thanks again, Bob. You're always over my head with your intelligence. I can tell you that. Thank you so much for coming back with us, Bob. Folks, we'll it's be a back great next pleasure, week. Pete. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.